week. <laughs> this time next week, it'll all be over with. And set 7.30 at night, Thursday night, I'll probably be asleep. <laughs> that first year, I remember that we had Bible class. So many people came in from out of town that we decided that we had Bible class on Thursday night. And we swore we'd never do that again. We were all just exhausted from the conference. It was all we could do to drag ourselves back up here for that Thursday night. Okay, so uh, Texas primary elections end tomorrow. So the actual election day is on Tuesday, March 5th. And that also happens to be the night that they have their um, uh, precinct meetings to select uh, representatives to go to, I think it is, not the Senate district, but whatever the first um, level of meetings are, you go through that, and then the Senate districts, and then the uh, uh, then you go on up to where you'll be, can be picked as a representative to go to the uh, National Convention. And the reality is, is that, that I've been p- picked a couple of times to be a representative at the local and se- Senate district because there are so few people who are even showing up at the meetings that, for example, our precinct can send, I think it's like 25 or 26 representatives to the next meeting. And what? Delegates. Delegates. Right. Delegates to the meeting. And then... Um, um, you know, they usually have five there that get elected and then they start looking for volunteers. So, but I'd encourage you that if you have the time to be involved in that process, it is a part of the democratic process and it's, it's excellent. Every year that I've mentioned this, there's always four or five people who are listening, live streaming out there somewhere and they end up being uh, chosen as a delegate to the, um, state level or to the, uh, some have even had an opportunity to go to state. I've never been in town when they had, I mean, the national convention, I've never been in town town for that. But anyway, that's that's a priority thing, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, Chafer Conference is next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so please remember that uh, either now or Sunday morning, take your personal belongings away from your chairs and take them home because this place will be full. We have 311 people registered. Now, we don't have uh, an indication of how many of those are registering who are live streaming, and that's a certain number, and so nobody ever, who, last year I think we had 280, but we never had more than 180 actually in the room, because not everybody can meet every session, or they may be signing up and they're only coming to one session. So we that don't don't let that number uh, scare you too much, but it shows that this is a very popular topic, and so we need to be in prayer for those who are coming, and we're also going to need a few men to stay after church Sunday morning to pick up, set up tables and chairs uh, for the conference, as well as looking for a volunteer for the nursery. So this will be, I think this is going to be a fabulous conference. We have great lineup, and we have a huge level of interest for this year, so it's going to be uh, quite, quite exciting. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we begin, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. So we need to uh, confess sin if necessary in silent prayer. And then uh, after a few moments, I will answer in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are our creator and our redeemer. You've provided us with a perfect solution, a complete solution to the sin problem, which is the finished work of Christ on the cross, where he paid for our sins in full and said, it is finished, it is complete, it is paid in full. So, Father, we thank you for that. That's also the basis for our ongoing forgiveness of sin that we have because uh, as believers in Christ, we are uh, cleansed, Scripture says, when we confess sin. So, Father, we thank you for your grace. And, Father, we pray that as we continue our study, we may come to understand your grace better as we look at it against the backdrop of first uh, century uh, Judaism and what was going on not only in uh, Judea and Samaria, but also in many of the synagogues that the Apostle Paul went to. Help us to have a greater grasp of these issues that as we reflect upon them against the uh, contrasting them against the background of the issues of the day, we can have a clearer understanding. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. But tonight we're really not touching much on on the uh, subject at hand because I felt like it was necessary to go back, complete some thoughts that I had a couple of lessons back. And really, we need to um, also identify this lesson in terms of New Testament backgrounds or gospel backgrounds. I've never gone through uh, in as much detail some of the things that I'm going through uh, this evening, but uh, this is important because we're looking at uh, one of the one of what I would say three of the central passages for understanding justification. Those three passages are Romans four three through twenty four, and then Galatians two fourteen to twenty one, and then our passage in Philippians three three through nine, and in Galatians in the Galatian epistle and in Philippians. You have the same basic problem as Paul has gone into these uh, cities and he has gone first to the synagogue. And then after he has gone to the synagogue and after uh, they've been uh, asked not, not to come back and they have established a church, then after he was there, there were these group of observant uh, Jews. We need to understand where that their mentality comes from who are following him around saying that, no, 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 it's really great that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you you aren't saved unless you believe and are circumcised, unless you believe and uh, follow the law, or you're not going to really uh, be spiritual unless you believe and are circumcised and believe and follow the law. So they were adding works to the law. Well, the question is, where does that come from and what do we mean by that? And so some of this I've already covered, so it's going to be some review, but I'm adding to a lot of things I already said because 
some of this background, for example, going through the issues with the Maccabean revolt and the Hasmonean kingdom are not something that we just have on the top of our heads. So what I'm looking at as background here is understanding the development of Second Temple Judaism. And what do I mean by Second Temple Judaism? We have the first temple, which was uh, dedicated by Solomon somewhere around 989 B.C., and that is when the first temple is dedicated. The first temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. Uh, so you go from 989 to 586, that's the first temple. It was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and then it is rebuilt, and the second temple is rebuilt and dedicated during the time of, of Haggai, Zechariah, and that is in 516 BC. So that's when the second temple, and now that was a much smaller temple. But when Herod the Great became king of, of Judea, then he was, he just loved to build things. And so he built huge things all over the country. And those of you who've been to Israel, we've seen a lot of the architecture and the things that he did that are just amazing. But he, he remodeled the temple made it much larger, and it was really considered the eighth wonder of the ancient world. It was said that there were, if you had not seen Jerusalem in the temple, you had not seen beauty. It was, a, it was just a remarkable thing to recognize. The amount of gold that was used was such that as the uh, sun came up, for example, the, um, the temple faced east. So if you were coming from the east, or then as the sun came up and it hit that gold, it just exploded in brilliance and lit up the valley. And the interesting thing is that when you went into the temple from the, at the morning offering, your back would be to the sun. And that was designed by God because the pagans worshipped the sun. And so you're turning your back on the rising sun to go in and to worship the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So that's a, it's called one temple, whether it, you're talking about the, uh, the earlier post-exilic temple built at the time by Zerubbabel, or you're talking about it's, the fact that it's remodeled, it's considered the second temple, not the second and third, because the offerings never cease. Okay, so the daily offerings continued, so that's why it's considered the second temple. So just to remind you, since we've been away for a couple of weeks, is that the issue in Philippians are twofold. One is unity, the other is standing firm, and uh, they're striving together. And so this is a major issue. I've read several things recently that seem to look uh, very superficially at the epistle of Philippians talking about as if there were no problems, but there were major problems here. Number one, there was fractiousness. There were problems of a lack of unity, uh, which is a result of lack of humility and uh, self-centeredness. And so on the other hand, you also had uh, two major uh, threats from false doctrine. One was the work system introduced by the Judaizers, and the other we will see has to do with the false religions of the uh, pagan empire. 
So that's, that's the background. So we're looking at the beginning here with the issue of the Judaizers and adding works to justification. And so Paul emphasizes that we can't have confidence in the flesh. The term flesh refers to our sin nature. And he says that he could have confidence in the flesh if anyone could because of all that he did. And then he begins to list all of his various uh, accomplishments, all of his various deeds. And so we looked at the chronology of the Maccabean revolt because we're going to look at what does it mean to be a Pharisee? What, what's developing in this intertestamental period? And then he says in verse 6, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, there was a level of experiential righteousness that was talked about in the law, but as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, that unless the disciples, so he's talking to them as believers. He's not talking about imputed righteousness at all, even though a lot of us have been taught that and heard it. It's very clear, as I demonstrated when we went through Matthew several years ago, is that it says that Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain away from the crowd. And so you'll see various people who will try to um, argue that, well, the crowd came along behind, but there's no indication of that in Matthew, not at all. He's talking to them as saved, their believers, and he says, uh, your righteousness has to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's talking about experiential post-salvation uh, spiritual maturity and uh, going on into reward. So uh, we have to understand these things against the background of what had happened after the exile. So when we talk about the exile, we talk about, we're talking about the 70 years after the destruction of the first temple in 586, to the restoration of the second temple 70 years later in 516. And that that is according to God's prophecy and according to God's plan as stated in in, uh, Jeremiah. So that's called the Babylonian exile. And so the three Old Testament books that are written after the exile are called, the the, the three prophets are called the post-exilic prophets. Nehemiah, and Ezra are also post-exilic. But uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are post-exilic after the exile. So I pointed out last time that during this period, you had, uh, according to Josephus, these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. So I want to talk just a little bit about them. And we're going to look at these four things uh, to understand what, Transpired because this, by the time you get to the first century, by the time you get to the early 30s when Jesus has entered into his public ministry, then these are the things that have influenced and shaped the thinking of those that he is talking to in Judea, in the south, and, and also in the north. So you have these four groups. Now, not everybody belonged to one of these four groups. But these were the dominant groups. So the first is the Pharisees. And often you'll hear or read the reference about the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes were those who were copyists of the scripture and writing and in, in charge of preserving the text. 
And so they had to be very meticulous in how they did. They had to be very, very well trained. And you'd also see references to the lawyers. And so these would be the experts, not lawyers like we have today, but these would be the experts on the Mosaic Law. And those were subgroups of, of Pharisees. And then you had the Sadducees, and they would be, the Pharisees would be your more conservative. They believed in Mosaic authorship. They believed in uh, and went to all of the, uh, in, in uh, Hebrew, there's 27 books in the Old Testament, and, and uh, uh, the way they organize it is different. For example, one book is called the Twelve. So that, that's how you get so many different ones. And then Samuel's one book, and then they have, we have First and Second Kings, and that's uh, just kingdoms in, in the Hebrew text. So that's just one book. Uh, Chronicles is one book. So when you uh, break things out, it's the same material. It's just organized and broken down with diff- different names. So the Pharisees had a high view of Scripture, and they had a high view of the inspiration of God. And the Sadducees uh, had a lower view of Scripture, not necessarily that much lower, not like a liberal today, but they they only held to the Pentateuch. They didn't have as high a view of the rest of the of, of the Old Testament. And the Essenes were sort of a, a very uh, righteous group that uh, was really in revolt against what had taken place during the, this intertestamental period as the people had become more Hellenized, and that means they were more influenced with and had compromised with Greek culture, so they decided that they needed to be, they were the separatists. They were like uh, the American uh, pilgrims. They were separatist Baptists in England, and they did not want to go to Anglican churches where there were still some forms of ritual and liturgy uh, left over from Roman Catholicism. So they were separatists, and that's what the Essenes were. But they separated and had a monastic-type community uh, down in the Dead Sea. And many people, scholars, believe those were the folks that were at Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's still debate among scholars exactly who they they were. And the Herodians were the ones who were uh, all tied up and connected to the house of Herod, the family of Herod. And so they were uh, closely connected, uh, connected to him. So you have a medieval uh, depiction here of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes from 1493 in the Nuremberg Chronicle. And so this is how they were, they were portrayed in, uh, in very stereotypical Jewish uh, uh, garb. Okay, second point we looked at, the origin of the Pharisaical movement is much disputed. Nobody knows exactly when it began or what the conditions were, but it was the t- during the time of the Maccabean Revolt and the Hasmonean Kingdom as they were uh, seeking to purify the temple, seeking to purify the ritual of, of the Jews from the influence of the paganism of the Greeks, the, the Hellenistic influence that was, that was coming in. 
and so it's uh, it's not real sure when they start. We know when they're active for sure, and their name derived from the word parash, which means to separate or divide. And we looked at this issue of who the Maccabees were or who the uh, Hasmoneans were, and I think I heard somebody talking the other day that the Maccabean Games, uh, which is uh, sort of like a an uh, Olympic-type athletic event is going to be held here in Houston later uh, later this year for, uh, I think it's just for uh, the Amer- American uh, uh, Jewish organizations. So we look at the Hasmonean Kingdom, 167 to 63, and this starts because of a revolt that occurs because of the way that Antiochus IV, called Antiochus Epiphanes, is forcing the Jews to um, to bow down to his authority and that he's prohibited, criminalized, made it a capital crime to circumcise the male infants, to even possess the Hebrew scriptures, to do any Hebrew or Jewish ritual, everything like that. And so what had happened historically, this is a map showing uh, the size of the uh, Greek Empire, the expansion under Alexander the Great, and how it was broken down and divided into uh, 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 or among his four uh, four generals. The two we're concerned about, the red in the south Egypt that went to uh, his one of his generals, Ptolemy, and his descendants, and then in the north in the green that was the Seleucids, uh, although the, if you're British you say Seleucids, and this is uh, where the battle was. And so if you notice that the territory just between them is the area of the Levant, which is a term that describes basically the, um, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It's Syria, Lebanon, uh, Israel, and Jordan, that whole area uh, that's surrounded here. And that's right between these two warring kingdoms, and they're fighting for 100 years uh, in order to um, uh, one side or the other to uh, use control. So when Alexander died and uh, his general Ptolemy took over Egypt, uh, they had uh, this was a time when the Ptolemies ruled and was a time period when a lot of uh, things happened historically. It's interesting that the Ptolemies were Macedonians. All of Alexander's generals were Macedonians. They were, they wouldn't even have been Greeks. When you look at at, at Greece up here, Macedonia is in the brown here, and then you have Achaia and Sparta further south. So they were they were Macedonians, and of course the last of the line was Cleopatra, and I pointed out that she was uh, Macedonian. She was not dark-skinned African, which is how she is often pictured. Uh, today due to the racism of our modern culture. And so uh, it was also the time period under the Ptolemies when the the Jewish communities that that still remained in in Egypt, which was quite large, and their center was in Alexandria. And remember, after the uh, temple was destroyed in 586, Jeremiah can buy a large group of them, and they went down to Egypt. Well, that community stayed there, and by the time you get to about um, uh, 300 B.C., they can't read Hebrew anymore. And so they brought in various uh, Hebrew scholars who were able to translate 
the Hebrew, these rabbis translated the Hebrew of the Torah first, the first five books of Moses, uh, at 275 B.C., and they, that's when they began, and they translated that into, into Greek so that the people could, could read it. So that was one of the uh, great advances at that particular time, and it was, a, um, it was a, a, an advanced culture. There were a number of tremendous uh, philosophers, Jewish philosophers and others, that uh, came out of that uh, Ptolemaic empire at that, at that time. And... Um, the Seleucids controlled the area to the uh, to the north and to the northeast and northwest, and those fights just continued. Now, in our chart, our timeline, I added a few things. We have this Re- Maccabean revolt begins in 174 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes and see Antioch. Let me go back here to this map, you can see it. Antioch is right about here where you have this red explosion for a battle there that took place. That's very close to Antioch, right on that uh, northwestern Syrian coast just before it makes a, a turn to the, to the left. And that is where the, uh, the um, Seleucids had their capital. That's why so many of their kings were named Antiochus after Antioch, which was their, uh, which was their main, main city. And so he goes in and he forces the Jews to submit and he sacrifices a sow, uh, an unclean pig, a sow on the altar in, um, uh, in, in the temple in Jerusalem, which is a type of what will happen during the tribulation when the Antichrist will uh, put his statue in the Holy of Holies in the Tribulation Temple uh, during that period of time. And so Antiochus is a picture of evil, and he uh, is responsible for the murder and execution of hundreds of Jews who refused to, uh, to bow down and be disloyal to the Torah. Uh, went to Modin, which is in the, um, which was a little bit west from Jerusalem towards uh, modern Tel Aviv, and Mattathias, who was a priest there, refused to a- sacrifice a pig on the altar. And so, as they were forcing uh, him uh, to do it, he refused. Then another, a, a Jewish man who had already compromised, he was a, a Hellenist, uh, volunteered to sacrifice the pig. And so, Mattathias grabbed a soldier's sword, killed the uh, Hellenist, and then killed the. Um, uh, the governor who was there to to force them to to sacrifice the pig on the altar, and so that begins the revolt, and it goes through uh, this time period 166, and then finally the revolt ends about 152. But it's not until 142 that they really have uh, political freedom. They have religious freedom from the time they defeat the uh, Syrians at, at Beth Haran. They, that's when they cleanse the temple. And that's the beginning of Hanukkah. So in 142, they have political freedom. Uh, John Hyrcanus is one of the uh, high priests because the Hasmoneans were from a priestly line. But once they established this kingdom, they made themselves priest kings. Now, that really upset a lot of people. So you have a, a group of very observant Jews who want to stick to exactly what the Torah says and because they are loyal to the covenant, they are called Hasidim. 
We are familiar with the Hebrew word chesed, which is translated faithful, loyal love, has to do with faithfulness or loyalty to a covenant, and um, that is used many times to refer to God's faithful or loyal love in the book, book of the Psalms. And so they were called Hasidim, not to be confused with modern Hasidim, which have their roots in some reform movements and Orthodox Judaism in 17th century Poland. Uh, so it's the same word, but it's they're not connected at, at, at all. And so the Hasidim are very upset because of the uh, this whole movement to Hellenize the Jews. They want to turn Jerusalem into a Greek polis, a Greek city. They want to uh, do away with anything that is related to Judaism. They want to hold Olympic Games, and all of the athletes will... Uh, compete uh, totally in the buff, totally nude. And so this is causing a, a huge, huge problem. And so when the, then when the uh, Maccabees uh, take, take control, uh, they appoint one of, one of them becomes the ruler, so he becomes a priest king. Well, this also is a violation of the Mosaic law. So this upsets uh, the Hasidim as well, and so you have the beginnings of this uh, this, this conflict uh, taking place within the people uh, uh, people of Israel, and so throughout this time, there's different movements in order to purify and cleanse uh, the nation and cleanse the religion, and it's out of that environment that the Pharisees arise, as do the Essenes. The Essenes are as conservative as the Pharisees and legalistic, but they're like a lot of very concerned, um, righteous people. They just don't want to be around everybody, so they're going to turn legalistic and head off uh, to the Dead Sea and do their own thing down there. They would write, in their writings, they would refer to the high priest as someone who was evil and someone who was wicked. They would, not, they would send animals to be sacrificed at the temple, but they would not go to Jerusalem. They would not pay the temple tax, and they knew that the Messiah would come soon, and so they set up in their communes just to wait for the coming uh, of, this, of the um, Messiah. Now, what's going on back in Jerusalem is you're having incredible battles, almost a civil war between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they would be responsible for um, uh, executing one another. They would sometimes uh, uh, poke, uh, uh, poke the eyes out, put the eyes out of one another, and they would uh, uh, torture uh, one another that they captive. So it was brutally, it was it was uh, a, a real level of brutality during this time. That by the time you get to Jesus, it's really calmed down a lot from what it was about 200 years before, when they were just uh, really right in each other's faces and and a killing and torturing uh, one another. But also at this, as you go through this time period you see the certain developments that take place in the, um, in, on the religious side among the Hasidim and especially the Pharisees. Now, not all Hasidim were Pharisees, not all Pharisees were Hasidim, 
But a lot of the Hasidim were Pharisees, and a lot of the Pharisees were, would also have been uh, Hasidim. And so it's during this period that you have the rise of a group that are called the scribes. And the Hebrew word for this is the Sopharim. And so I had a friend who, who died a few years ago, and his last name was Sopher. And so he would have been probably his family line would trace back to, to scribes at some point. And so they were called the scribes, the Sopharim, or the sages, and they began to develop at the time of Ezra. Ezra was a priest. Ezra was a scribe. And so Ezra lived around 440 B.C. So the period that is referred to as that of the scribes or the Sopharim is from the time of Ezra, which is 440. And that's a pretty close to the same time uh, that you know Ezra is written and Malachi is written. And this is close to the time that the Old Testament uh, canon closes and God is silent for the next 400 years. And, um, and, and it extends to the destruction of the temple. So this is, this is much of the, about 90% of the second temple period. It's, remember, it starts in 516 B.C. when they uh, dedicated the, the, the second temple. And that's about 80 years or so, 75 or 80 years before the time of Ezra, and then from Ezra on, you have the Sopharim. And so their responsibility was to um, not only to copy down the scriptures and to record them, but they were also responsible for, as it, as it developed, for uh, interpreting the law, asking questions about, well, what exactly does the, does the law mean? And so that uh, was a very, very important uh, time for them. And so it denoted uh, several uh, different aspects of that for being, um, uh, being a, a scribe. One of the ways in which we might relate it is someone who is a secretary, but when a scribe is copying the, the scriptures, they had a special ink. They had a special formula for the ink. They had special ways in which the uh, animal skins, the vellum, uh, had to be treated that they were writing on, later the papyrus. So everything had to be done a certain way in a, spe a specific way, and they would count all of the letters. So they knew how many lines were on. A, they would block out a page. on a It would be a long scroll, so they'd go have page by page as they went along and they would mark it out so that they knew that on this particular page it began with this word ended with a certain word each line they knew what how many words were in every line how many words were on every page and they would count them and and uh, they probably started this tradition then that they had uh, a song that they would chant that was related to that particular letter or that particular word. So as they would start to outline the letter, they would be saying something, some little uh, chant that was related to that letter to keep them focused on this, this letter. And so they might take a uh, little time, maybe a couple of minutes, just to do one letter. Then they would move to the next letter. And so they were constantly, and if they made a mistake, then the whole scroll would have to be burned. 
and they would take those burned scrolls, or what was our, our, the scroll would have to be destroyed, not burned, would have to be destroyed, and they would take it and they would uh, take it out of the city somewhere, and they would bury it in an unmarked and unreported location, and that would, was called a geniza. And in, in, during some construction in Egypt about a hundred years ago in Cairo, they discovered a geniza. And so they had all of these ancient scrolls. They had a mistake on them here or there, and that, therefore they had been, they weren't acceptable. But by recovering those, it provides assistance in the whole science of, of uh, textual, uh, textual criticism. So the scribes were responsible for writing and editing and preserving and transmitting uh, the text, as well as various commentaries or interpretations of the text. And they would also be responsible for, um, for teaching uh, the law to the, to the people. So they would, uh, as that time developed, they also became legal experts. And so I started this diagram a couple of weeks back. So you start with the Torah, with the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. And uh, their concern coming back from Babylon was, we broke the law, God punished us, we don't ever want to go through that again. So we need to figure out a way where we can protect those 613 commandments so that we don't break them. So we're going to set up various, uh, various additional rules and laws and traditions that if we don't break those, then we certainly won't break uh, any of the original 613 laws. And so that's called building a fence around the law. And the first fence was built by the Sophorim or the sages, and they had this development of an idea of an oral tradition was the source of these these uh, uh, these additional laws, and so the the idea was developed that um, Moses was given the, the written law, the written Torah, but God also communicated to Moses the oral law, and that is what was referred to in the New Testament by phrases such as the traditions of the fathers. Jesus would talk about this. He'd say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said that X, Y, or Z. And then he would say, but I tell you. So that's how he taught that when he says what you have heard, that's the oral law. And then he also referred to it as the tradition of the elders. So the elders would refer back to the Sophorim. So the Sophorim were active from the time of Ezra up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So this relates specifically to the background of the New Testament. Now, this comes into effect during the Hasmonean dynasty. So I just want to point this out. I've highlighted or bold-faced certain of the leaders because I want you to see this genealogy. So Mattathias is the priest who initiated the revolt in, in Modin. And he had four sons, Judas, Maccabee, the hammer, Jonathan, Simon, or five sons, Simon, Eliezer, and John. Well, Simon is going to be the father of John Hyrcanus, who is very famous, a high priest and ruler of Jerusalem and king 
and he lit, his dates are 135 to 104. Uh, he is um, has several sons, and the one who becomes the ruler is Alexander Janius, and he rules from 103 to 76, so we're getting to within 100 years of the New Testament period, and he marries uh, Salome Alexandra. And they have a son, John Hyrcanus II, and another son, Aristobulus II. So the line goes from Simon to John Hyrcanus to Alexander Janius to Aristobulus II. And he has a granddaughter named Mary Amne. Mary Amne becomes the first wife of Herod the Great. That gives him legitimacy because he's an Idumean. He's an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. There's not a drop of Jewish blood in him. But by marrying uh, Mary Amne as, as a Hasmonean aristocrat and in the line of the priest and the priest king, uh, that give, gave him legitimacy. So Rome uh, will um, come in and take over uh, the area of Judea and Samaria. It's not called Palestine till 135 A.D. They take over the area of Judea and Samaria because it's just a, an absolute total chaos with these wars, these fights, the, the assassinations. It's like gang warfare down in some of the worst ghetto areas uh, like the Galleria uh, in, in America. It was horrific. The crime, everything was, it was so bad, and Rome came in and stopped it all. And so they're going to appoint their ruler to bring stability into uh, Judea. And that is going to be Herod the Great, and they're going to make him the king of the Jews. And so he is a descendant of Antagonus, uh, Antigonus, and so because of that, he, he already has... Um, uh, a position uh, with the Romans, and so they're going to appoint Herod the Great as the king. Now, here's Herod's, uh, Herod's genealogy. And in Herod's genealogy, uh, it's, it's really, he's, he's a genius and he's psychotic. And there's nothing that you really want to do if you're going to be close to somebody who is a genius or is psychotic. And yet, that's what he was, and so he is. Um, uh, he's he dies in 4 BC. I didn't put that date up there, but he dies in 4 BC, and so his kingdom gets divided between his three sons. Uh, the Romans divide it because they don't want anybody in the area having too much power, as Herod did, and so they uh, divide it to Archelaus. Archelaus is the ethnarch of Judea. That was the uh, Roman title. He is t taken down by the Romans in 6 AD because he was too brutal. Now, how brutal do you have to be for the Romans to think that you're brutal? So that was he was he was pretty bad, and so they they took him down. And they took him and moved him to uh, put him in retirement in Gaul. Where I had my page on that. Maybe this is it. Yeah. Okay. So he is, um, 
he's exiled to Gaul, and th- then um, the ki- so the kingdom is split between his sons uh, uh, Archelaus and Antipas, who is known as Herod Antipas. He's the uh, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, and he's the Herod in the Gospels, but they don't call him Herod Antipas. But people can get confused because Herod is the family name, and Herod also becomes the ruler's name, just as Julius Caesar's name, Caesar, becomes a title uh, for the ruler of the Roman Empire. So Herod Antipas is a tetrarch in Galilee. His headquarters, uh, his capital is in Tiberias, and he has oversight over uh, the area of Galilee, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, between the Sea of Galilee over towards uh, the Mediterranean, and also the areas on the Transjordan, the area across the Sea of Galilee, and he oversees that as well. And he's going to rule until 39, which is a pretty long uh, period, period of time, and his brother Philip, who really has a much better situation because he's he gets the territory northeast of Galilee. Up there, if you've been to Israel, it's up there in the area of Tel Dan. It's in the area around um, Mount Carmel, uh, all that area, the, um, uh, the area of the Golan Heights. That was all his area. And so when we're on a tour in Israel, we go to Caesarea Philippi. So you have two cities. Uh, that were built in honor of the Caesar in in Israel. You have on the coast, you have Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea, and that became the headquarters of the procurator. So after Archelaus was uh, taken down and shipped off to Gaul, the Romans did not put in another uh, Herod in position there. They appointed Roman governors. And so that's what you have as the procurator. You have... Um, uh, Pontius Pilate and later uh, Felix and Festus and their headquarters is right there on the Mediterranean it's one of the most beautiful areas that we go to Caesarea Maritima and that but that's not the same as Caesarea Philippi so he builds a city up there um, in the north that is his capital city and he is the tetrarch and ruler of Galilee until 34 so this is about a year after the time that uh, that uh, Jesus is crucified. And then uh, when Antipas dies five years later, and then he is replaced by his son, Herod Agrippa I, who is the Tetrarch uh, northeast of Galilee. And he is um, he is considered the, the Herod that's in the first part of Acts. He's the one who thinks that he can be worshipped as God and he dies right out there on the stage in front of everybody as he is eaten with worms. So he has a pretty horrible death. And then his son, uh, Herod Agrippa II, is the Tetrarch of Galilee from 50 to 92. Now, he's loyal to Rome through the time of the Jewish revolt. So he's going to uh, be in his position until uh, until the end of, of his life. So the situation that you have with Herod the Great is that he's allowed to collect taxes, but he's not allowed to raise an army. Now, that's a pretty decent deal for somebody who is a, in a position of power like that because he, he, doesn't have to, he can raise all the money he wants, but he doesn't have to spend it on his military. Rome is providing the military and, and his, his defense. 
And so he is uh, surrounding himself with very loyal followers, and these loyal followers are called the Herodians. So that's who you see showing up on the pages of Scripture. Now, the Herodians are uh, hostile to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are hostile to each other and to the Herodians. So you really have these three groups, and they don't agree with each other. And the Herodians are uh, nominal, nominally uh, Jewish in terms of their uh, religion, Whereas you have the the Sadducees and the Pharisees have their different different uh, religious uh, religious positions, so it, they had these huge debates between them. And there's a passage in Matthew 22 where the Herodians and um, are debating the temple tax, and they come to Jesus and they say, "Well, should um, should we pay taxes because the um, uh, the Pharisees were very much against uh, paying taxes, and of course the Herodians wanted them to pay taxes, and this was a big debate, and they, their legal experts could not resolve it. The Pharisees were against it for all matter of theological reasons, and so um, the Pharisees wanted to kind of keep their distance from this this debate, so they sent their students, they sent their disciples, and that's what the text says, the disciples of the Pharisees, that means their students, uh, went down to uh, talk to set this situation up with Jesus, and what they want to do is they want to create this this a very difficult argument. There's no resolution to the argument that nobody can figure out what the solution is, and so uh, the question is: Is it lawful to, for the Jews to pay taxes uh, to Caesar? And so. Uh, as they are doing this, they think they have created this uh, conundrum and put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. But it's always interesting to watch how Jesus handles these things. He's always very sophisticated in his arguments. And so this is when he takes the coin out of the, and he says, well, now, whose image is on this? And it's Caesar. And he says, well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. So what's the question he's asked? He said, whose image is on this? And image was, the the fact that human beings are the image of God is a major pharisaical doctrine. They understood that. We're all crea- created in the image of God. So he's going to take this coin, whose image is on it, and they say it's Caesar. So he says, it's Caesar's coin, so give Caesar his coins but render unto God what is God's. And what what he means by that is what is God's is every human being because you're in the image of God. You belong to God. So you have a higher duty to serve God than you do to serve serve Caesar. And so uh, he just answers that and leaves uh, leaves them behind. So the Herodians are very loyal, uh, very loyal to Herod. Now, after he dies and everything is split up, then you have uh, the rise of these of his sons taking over, and that perform, forms the backdrop to Acts and uh, the period up to the um, up to the Jewish War that of rebellion, which begins in 66. So we've seen that the first major development was the scribes, the Sopharim, and they are. Um, trying to protect the the Torah. But after the destruction of the temple, 
there is another group that comes along, and they are known as as the Tanaim. They're known as the Tanaim, and the Tanaim are responsible for codifying the oral law. So this is a re- group of rabbinic sages uh, from this period until they get the Mishnah coordinated and codified and, uh, or, and systematized, and that happens around 200 under the leadership of Judah Hanasi, which means Judah the Prince. Uh, now, the two most prominent rabbis during this period of the Tana, the Tana is singular, Tanaim is plural. Uh, under, the ta- uh, under the Tanaim, the two Tana that are most significant are Judah Hanasi, uh, because of what he does with the Mishnah, but Rabbi Akiba. Now, Rabbi Akiva is an absolutely brilliant Pharisee. And what Rabbi Akiva does after the temple is destroyed, how can we hold the Jews together? How can we reorganize our worship to preserve our community? And so they meet at a, at a village south of tele, modern Tel Aviv called Yamnia or Yamnia. And they meet there, and they meet there for, for several years, and they re, and they codify, uh, the rules that will govern, uh, Judaism without a temple. And he is very hostile to the Christians, and he's hostile to Jesus' claims as Messiah. And in recent, recent times, I have discovered that no one, there was absolutely no one, that made a claim to be a Messiah before Jesus. So he's got this idea that he's got to come up with a counter-Messiah to Jesus. And so he uh, finds this uh, one individual. They call him the Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, going back to the passage in Numbers that talks about the star. And uh, they have a second Jewish revolt. This comes up uh, several years after Yamnia. And, and the second revolt ends in 135, and they say that around 900,000 Jews were killed in the second Jewish revolt. So it wasn't a good place to live. And if you think through what's going on in, the, in, in this area around Judea, Samaria, Galilee, from the time of the destruction that occurs and the deportation of Jews in 586, and how impoverished they were when they came back, and the number of wars that they uh, ha- they experienced over the next 300 years between the Ptolemies and the um, uh, and the Seleucids, uh, what we're seeing today is par for the course in the Middle East. This is normative. Without a historical perspective, you get your your panties in a knot because you think this is something unusual. It's not. You go back through history, this has been the center point of, of hostilities between all kinds of armies all through this, this particular history. And it's, it's uh, until they, uh, they, when they destroy the, um, uh, when, when the Jews, Jew, Second Jewish Revolt has finally ended, Hadrian, who is the Roman Caesar by then, is so angry at the Jews, and he throws the Christians in for good measure, that he's going to go into the holy sites in Jerusalem, and he will level what's left of them. 
the places they venerated, where the crucifixion occurred, where the tomb was. And so that, he builds a temple to uh, Aphrodite there. He built a temple to Zeus over the site of the temple on the Temple Mount. He built another temple over the site in Bethlehem uh, where Jesus was born. In other words, the temple marks the spot. He preserved those locations historically for us. And so when Constantine becomes emperor in um, about, what, about 312 uh, A.D., his mother, who is a Christian, goes to the Middle East and wants the folks there who have their traditions. Remember, you don't have a lot of people living in these places, so they know uh, generations back what happened, and they knew, so they showed her where uh, Hadrian's temple was. So, so after that, she talks to Constantine. They go in there. They tear, tear down the pagan temples, and they built churches. They built two churches, over one over the site of the crucifixion and one over the site of the, uh, of the tomb. And then later, those were joined together as one church, and many of you have been there. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then you have the Church of the Nativity in, in Bethlehem. And, of course, the Muslims came in and built their monstrosity there on top of the, um, on top of the Temple Mount. And that is just a blasphemy. It's politically incorrect, and it is a, it, they have uh, every scripture in the Quran that attacks, blasphemes the deity of Christ and the person of Christ is written on the inside of the Dome of the Rock. So the Dome of the Rock is a monument to their hostility and rejection of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, you have this third group, the Tanaim, and they build a second fence around the law. So these are additional rules and regulations so that you will, um, uh, to prevent you from possibly violating one of the laws. For example, there's a law in the Torah that says you should not boil a kid in its mother's milk. This was a part of a, a pagan ritual. And so now it, it, it is seen in, within Judaism as they've said, okay, we don't want to boil a kid in its mother's milk, so we've got to make sure that we don't even uh, have the possibility of the dairy, the milk from the mother, mixed into the stomach of an individual with the meat that could possibly have come from uh, the kid from that particular ewe. And so they have a dietary restrictions that you keep complete separate set of dishes for dairy and you have complete separate uh, set of dishes for cooking and eating and everything for, for meat. And we've seen this when we've gone to Israel that you, for example, we stayed at one hotel where the kitchen was a dairy kitchen. And so the, that restaurant there was a dairy restaurant. It was very good, but it was all dairy. You can have pasta and you can have lots of things, but you can't have, you can't have, uh, you know, pasta bolognese and meatballs in, in a dairy kitchen. But it, I didn't find this out till several years later, but if you call for room service, the room service kitchen is a meat kitchen. So some people would get kind of bored after two or three nights eating in the dairy kitchen. Well, I didn't know that until until sometime later. 
So these are the, the rules and regulations that people follow in an Orthodox home. They'll have two sets of dishes, and they have to make sure that, that they never get meat. If you do, you have to completely destroy them. And this is the kind of traditions that develop to prevent the possibility of ever, ever, ever boiling a kid in its mother's milk. And they would think that when it gets all churned up in your stomach, that's like boiling, and so you can't risk that happening. And then after the Tanaim, you had a third fence built around the law, and this is called the Amoraim. And from the Hebrew word Amar, meaning the sayings, and I didn't delete the Rabbi Akiba, Judah Hanasi, just take that out. Um, that's, that's the third fence. And so this was from the period from 8200 to A.D. 500. Now, that's, that pretty much sets all of these orthodox rules and regulations in place. So it's not just the 613 commandments. It's thousands of commandments that you have to pay attention to uh, if you are going to going to be be righteous, and this this is the problem because they see all of this, and ultimately it's as we saw when I talked about circumcision a few weeks ago, that it is on the virtue of being a descendant of Abraham, and also circumcision. Uh, circumcision is salvific. I had a quote from uh, Rabbi Matia. Uh, that'd be Matthew Ben Karish, who said, "But as yet they have no commandments to perform by virtue of which they merit redemption." See, the performance of commandments merits redemption. You merit your salvation. You earn it. And the second quote: "God therefore assigned them, that's Israel, the two commandments: the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb and circumcision." which they were to perform so as to merit being saved, one cannot obtain reward except by deeds. So it is by the works of the law. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.16 that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by the death of Christ. Um, Jacob Neusner, modern writer, his a rabbi, he edited the Encyclopedia of Judaism, says, regularly, therefore, uh, oh, I can't skip the first sentence, as the Ezekiel exegesis demonstrates the central symbol of the circumcision ritual was its blood. Regularly, therefore, we find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. There again, it is salvation, uh, salvation by works. He goes on to say, at any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources. So that's from 100 to 200. It's the sign of the covenant that saves. It is the paradigmatic, salvific example of a good work. So this is this is the idea of tzedakah, of, of righteousness, of charitable deeds, which is why I've written this this tract focusing on righteousness, is because that is such a central word uh, within Judaism. Now, what comes out of this period, just so you have some vocabulary enhancement is the Mishnah. And it was interesting last week, two weeks ago, when we had the speakers here, I was asked a couple of questions. Well, what's the Mishnah? What's the Talmud? 
And those are common questions from, from Ugoi. Uh, I took a course in Mishnah from Alan Ross when I was in my third year at Dallas Seminary. And at the end of the course, I still wasn't sure what some of these terms meant. Of course, you know, Al, Alan had just come back from Oxford, or Cambridge, excuse me, Cambridge, where he got his Ph.D. in, uh, in studying rabbinics there. And his head was way up in the clouds somewhere. And I've heard, I've got a recording of him teaching the course um, differently, and it's much more understandable. In fact, Randy Price and I were both in the course at the time, and we were laughing about it a few years ago because uh, Randy, of course, went on after he graduated from Dallas, he went to Jerusalem and studied at the Hebrew University. He said, I took three courses on the Mishnah before I, you know, before I really understood some of this stuff. Because Alan just, he said he, he was so into, he just assumed we knew all these terms and went through it. And, and it was, and then it was more difficult to find the, the definitions. So Mishnah uh, is a noun in Hebrew. You put an M at the beginning of a verb and that makes it a noun from Shana, which means to learn or to repeat. And it's the organized written collection of the statements, discussion, and debates in the development of the oral law during the period of the uh, Sofarim. And it includes the interpretations of the Tanaim. They come in, remember, after the destruction of the temple. And it is organized, organized and systematized by Judah Hanasi. And that is in two, around 200 A.D. The Gemara then, when you look at the Talmud, I'm going to show you a picture of a page in the Talmud in a minute. Uh, you have a center square, that's the Mishnah. And then you have a margins, and then there's a surrounding commentary that's called the Gemara. And so the Gemara was a collection of the statements from the Amorim over the next few a uh, few centuries from 200 to 500. So you see this is a picture of the, here you have in the middle, this is from the Mishnah, and then the surrounding commentary is the, the, the Gemara. And there's all sorts of other annotations and everything, and it all gets pretty, pretty con convoluted and complex. So the conclusion, conclusion is that in intertestamental uh, period, various forms of Judaism institutionalized the works of the law as a means of salvation. And so this is all present when the Apostle Paul begins to uh, address all of these things. So next time what we're going to do is we're going to come back, we're going to look more at Acts and at Paul in Acts and look at the Jewishness of Paul. And this is also important to understand in terms of some of our background studies that we've done is because within modern Judaism, you can't, you're either a Jew or a Christian. You can't be Jewish and be a believer in Yeshua as Messiah. And it's interesting. I was in a conversation with a Jewish friend many years ago, and um, uh, she was talking about a, a Jewish Buddhist. And I said, how is it that you can be 
Jewish and a Buddhist. You can be Jewish and a Hindu. You can be Jewish and an atheist. You can be Jewish and agnostic, but you cannot be Jewish and Christian. She didn't have an answer. But that is that that what underlies that is the hostility towards Christianity that's still there because modern Judaism has its roots in what happened at Jamnia. And that was, those were the Pharisees that survived because the Sadducees had nothing to offer, no hope for anybody. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in um, miracles. They didn't really believe in uh, any kind of afterlife. And um, you always remember that because that's why they were sad, you see. So that's... um, that gives us a background here. So, the, so what we're dealing, what we see around us, what Paul was dealing with, were, were the same basic thing. It's just the works of the law. Are we saved by works? Or are we saved by by grace? So that gives us a, a good understanding of what Paul is talking about. What what's really underlying this statement that he makes when he says that he is a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that that is really loaded with a lot of content. He is saying that that nobody, if anybody could get to heaven by checking off all the boxes, it would have been me. But I count all of this to be scubala. It's all manure. It's useless. Nothing we do counts toward one thing. And if basically what he's saying is if you add any works to your understanding of what Christ did, you've destroyed the sufficiency of the cross. And so you believed a false gospel. You believed grace plus works. And no works can be included. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these background issues that we can have a better understanding of what's going on in the in the background in all of these epistles as Paul goes from synagogue and and the vast majority of believers at this time were Jewish background believers and this is what they were struggling to understand and to process as they were moving from legalism to grace and father we still see legalism all around us uh, and this gives us a pattern and it gives us an insight into the fact that, that Paul was dealing with the same struggles with the people who were saved at his time as we see around us today. And we pray that you'll help us to understand this and give us insight into the scriptures. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.